Steve Balton. You're here on People Have the Power, where this week we're joined by special guest Joan Osborne to discuss her most recent album, Trouble and Strife, her definition of protest songs, which is really interesting, and her choices from the likes of Bob Dylan, John Lennon, and Leslie Gore, which I found really interesting. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as we did. Thanks. Well, um, right now I'm in Brooklyn, which is where we usually live. But for the most part, we've been up in the Catskills since the pandemic started. My uh, my partner is immune compromised because of some of the medication that he's on. So we have really been trying to take this very seriously and not endanger him. So so that's how it's been. How, how are you? Where are you at? Uh, I'm in Long Beach, California, and I feel you. I'm diabetic, so I've been in the same place of just not being around anyone, not doing anything. I actually just went and got tested again today just because I <laughs> randomly, the only thing that I had agreed to do for ages was, uh, <laughs> so funny, I was actually interviewed for an Alanis Morissette documentary. But after oh. that, after that, <laughs> you know, I have, uh, I don't really do anything. So I'm in the same place as you, so I, I get it. But um you know, and it's funny because I have a very good friend who is in music industry there in New York. Uh, my friend John Sykes, who I'm sure you've known for years. Oh, yeah, I know John. Yeah. Yeah, and it's funny because he was telling me too. He's like, you know, he was in, you know, obviously in New York, and he's like, nope, dude. He's like, we've been up at the beach house. He's like, he's like, this is, you know, he's like, I've never been at my beach house for more than a week. Hmm. Yeah, that's uh, kind of the silver lining in in the cloud of all this. Of course, you don't want it to be at the expense of other people's suffering, but it it has enabled me to be in the country and to be home and off the road for, you know, all this time, which that never happens for me. So I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to enjoy it at the same time as, you know, you don't want it to be because other people are getting sick and dying. So... Well, it's interesting because I've spoken with a lot of artists about this and, you know, I mean, it's funny because I feel like people have really enjoyed the freedom that's come from, you know, having like not being in that traditional, you know, like, okay, album tour, album tour. So a lot of artists have have sort of found a freedom in being able to, you know, like uh, yesterday we interviewed, uh, we being my producer and I, Gary Lightbody from Snow Patrol, and he had done an album where basically every Saturday he would do these songwriting sessions with bands on Instagram and they would throw him words and he would turn these into, you know, and they would throw him chords and he would mm-hmm. turn these into songs. And that became actually an EP that's coming out in a couple of weeks. And Mike Shinoda from the band Lincoln Park, who I've known for years, he started doing these Twitch hangouts and turned those into intr- instrumental albums, you know, mm-hmm. and g Easy, who's a rapper, was doing, you know, like, um, what was he doing? You know, he was covering David Bowie and Beck you know, stuff that he never would have done before. So I think artists have really found a freedom to it. I mean, for you, have you found that to be the case a little bit? And, you know, let's start with an obvious thing. First of all, how long ago was the album done? Uh, Well, we actually finished up the editing process and uh, the mixing process um, in April. So the record was turned in at the beginning of May. So we used that time of being off the road to finish up the record and we would not have had that kind of time available to us because we had all, we had a tour booked. So uh, in that sense, it was good for us to be able to refocus onto this, this record and, and get it done. Interesting. Okay. So, I mean, so you had, you know, you had time to do that. 
mm-hmm. and everything. You know, one of the things that's really fascinating too, though, I've talked about this with a lot of artists is, you know, music has a tendency to kind of, you know, be um, prophetic, right? Prophetic. Like it's, yeah. It's like, it basically, you know, it's funny how you can release a song, you write a song a year ago, and then it becomes applicable to the time now. Mm-hmm. And I mean, certainly when you wrote, you know, for example, and I suck with titles, so I listen to everything all the way through. But when you wrote What You Should Say, I believe that's the name. Mm-hmm. What's that? As, uh-huh. Yes, as, you know, a song about, you know, problems with immigration. This was certainly going on a year ago, as it's been going on for four years under this administration. Mm-hmm. But it became even more applicable, I think, in certain respects this year with everything that's happened as well. You know, and especially when we have this lunatic who keeps insisting on calling it the China virus. Yeah, uh, I mean, that's the, <laughs> that's the sad thing about this time that we're living through is, uh, you know, I, I, you know, much of the record, of course, is a reaction and a response to, uh, you know, the political realities and, and the world that we're, that we're struggling to deal with and, you know, being woke, you know, somebody like me who's a relatively privileged person, uh, you know, waking up to the ways that the system was messed up even before. Um, and now it's just being rubbed in your face all day, every day. So, uh, you know, the, the sad thing about that is that you write a political song and a political screed uh, react, responding to a certain thing and three years down the line or two years down the line, it's even more applicable because things have gotten even worse. So, uh, you know, that's not a, I mean, just as a songwriter, I guess it's cool that your song is still relevant, but as a citizen and as a person, it's not good that the thing that you are railing against is still happening and is even getting worse. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, it's funny because as you know, we have your songs that you chose and everything, or I've seen them and Mm -hmm. you know, it's so funny because it's been such a recurring theme. Sorry. No worries. Sorry about that. Mm -hmm. It's all good. My dog is going to bark at some point. He does in every interview. So don't worry about it at all. (laughs) But what I was going to say, it's been such a recurring theme is that you have these amazing songs. And the first people I had on the show were the Indigo Girls who chose as their first song where we shall overcome. And we spoke about the fact that that song is a hundred years old and people were still singing it in protests in the streets, you know? And the recurring theme that I was going to say is, you know, wouldn't it be nice if we could appreciate these songs for what they are Mm -hmm. and not, you know, have to appreciate them for their relevance or for their timeliness. Couldn't we just appreciate them as being brilliant songs? Yeah. I mean, to me, I feel like when you talk about, you know, protest music or, uh, you know, political, political music, you also want to look at it through the lens of usefulness. Like how is this being used to support, uh, you know, whatever cause it is that you're you know, trying to support or whatever moment it is that you're trying to take part in, you know, music has a very particular role to play in social protests and in social movements. So I look at the songs in terms of, what is their use and how are they useful? And that's actually one of the guides that I sort of gave myself for putting this list together. Interesting. So, so let's tie that in and start with your first song, which is, let's see. Well, I have them in front of me. Kate Tempest, Europe is Lost, which was yeah. interesting to me too, because I don't know that song at all. Oh, you don't know it. Well, you no. You are going to 
you're in for a, a, a long uh, period of study, I think, because it's a it's a deep, deep song. You know, t- I know that she she's like a, a spoken word artist, aka rapper. You know, she's a white girl from England, so I think maybe people don't want to think of her as a rapper. But you know, she's obviously inspired by Public Enemy, and her her this song in particular is just a straight up in depth poetic political analysis of the world that her generation is living in right now and looking at it from the point of view of a young woman who is aware of the systems that are surrounding us and can see what's going on and can see what her you know life is the foundation of her life of just, you know, going out and partying and, and things like that. And even there's a line in it where she says, even the language that I'm using is, uh, you know, the product of violence and the product of uh, things like that. So she's really taking it apart piece by piece, uh, just what, what Europe is based on and, and where we're at right now. And, and it's really intelligent analysis. And it's a, it, it's also really poetic in the way that she, looks at it from a personal point of view as well. And it's, it's a deep, deep, deep track. I, you know, I just listened to it again before we started talking and there were things that I, you know, even though I know the song, there were things that I had missed the, you know, first many times that I've listened to it. And it's, it's something that you can sit and study for quite a while. Nice. Well, then I'm excited to check it out because there, there've been a few songs that people have chosen that I do not know. So mm-hmm. it's kind of fun for me to go and, and discover those. And, uh, and it's funny looking at your list in front of me, like I definitely do not know the one from the Chilean protesters either, which we will come to mm-hmm. later on. But, you know, it's a really interesting thing because one of the things I've enjoyed in doing the show is talking to people about, you know, as they do this music or as they, you know, look at this music, how it influences their own stuff. And do you feel like you hear an influence from her or tying in with the new album, some of the other stuff that you've chosen? Well, I wouldn't say that I'm necessarily influenced by by her. I think it's more um, appreciating what she does and appreciating that there's a whole universe out there of people who are making, you know, protest music and doing it in all these different styles. Uh, so I guess just, just in the way that as a, as a fellow human, you want to look around and see that there's other people who are interested in what you're interested in and doing the same thing that you're doing. So you feel kind of supported and like you're not out in the wilderness all by yourself. It's great to look to somebody like that who is a contemporary artist who is writing these really incisive political commentaries and putting them in, you know, spoken word or putting them in rap and releasing them as records and releasing them as videos. So that it's just cool to know that she's out there doing that. And uh, I think that's probably how it impacts me. Um, As far as influence goes, uh, you know, I, I also picked some of the songs on this list because um, they're sort of political songs hiding in plain sight in a way, you know, a a song like the Leslie Gore song, you don't own me. um, You know, that was a song back in, you know, like I guess the early sixties that that came out or the fifties. And it wasn't uh, you know, this was not a time when people were necessarily writing political songs for like, uh, you know, girl pop singers to sing. And uh, so it's a real anomaly. So it's kind of like this thing that's hiding in plain sight. And it's, it's a, it's an entertainment as well as it's has a message. And the same with the James Brown, it's an entertainment. It's this funky song that you can dance to, but it's also got this message about, 
you know, wanting to be seen as a, and respected as a man who can, uh, who, who doesn't want a handout, who's just looking for an opportunity to, to have the same chance that anybody else has. So for me, you know, trying to write songs that were political, I wanted them to be entertaining as well. I wanted them to, uh, you know, to have that sort of physical rhythmic thing that, that good pop music and good rock music has so that you're not feeling like you're sitting and listening to a lecture when you're listening to the song. So that it's got a sing along chorus with it that, that makes you feel good. You know, that's, I feel like that is what I was trying to do in this. And there are definitely examples on the list that I picked of other artists who've done this, who've done that as well. well. For you, when you go back then and listen to Trouble and Strife, you know, do you, are there moments that, that you feel like you, you know, that you're just proudest of or where you hit that or where it's like, because again, look, I mean, all great, to me, all great political songwriting is personal. If something is too heavy handed, it doesn't work. So to me, like, for example, I always cite John Lennon as my favorite political songwriter for the fact that, you know, he did such an amazing job of writing these songs that were relatable to everyone, regardless of whether you had gone through those experiences or not, you know, and Mm -hmm. Bob Marley is another artist who's come up a million times during this show. And, you know, I mean, you know, if you're, you're three years old, you don't understand what the hell redemption song means, but you know that you love to sing along to it. It sounds great. Yeah, that's why that's music. It's, it's like a, it's like a Trojan horse, you know, it, it gets into your mind and it gets into your body and your spirit. And you don't necessarily understand the lyrical content until maybe much later. And maybe you never consciously understand what the song is saying, but it's that message is getting through to you in some way. And it's getting, it's like the, you know, the spoonful of sugar that helps the medicine go down. You know, it's, it's pleasurable to you and you, and you want to hear the song and you want to sing along to it. You want to play along with it. Uh, so it's not like you're being, uh, it's not like an assignment for school or something. That's interesting. So for you, did you know what Leslie Gore, You Don't Own Me was about from a young age or was it something that you just, cause again, you're right. Leslie Gore has like, I mean, it's just a very catchy, fun song. <laughs> You know, and, and you probably don't think of it as a female empowerment song until later on. Until, yeah, until you understand that, you know, as you say, the personal is political. Uh, you know, that song is just this girl telling her boyfriend not to be possessive of her. So it is this very personal little story about one couple and about one girl saying, you know, no, you can't treat me like your possession. Um, but for that time and that place, you know, that was a a moment in history where women were supposed to be okay with being a guy's possession. That was supposed to be the height of what they could aspire to is, you know, being this man or this boy's one and only and having him, you know, marry you and, and, you know, and have you forever and ever. So for her to say that of like, you know, don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me what to say. You know, don't, when, when I go out with you, don't put me on display. You know, it's, it's very, you know, it comes from a very personal standpoint, but it's talking about these very deep things of I'm a person too. And you can't, you know, I'm not just your possession. I'm not just, you know, your arm candy or the extension of your identity. I'm my own person. And so to me, that's, it's such a perfect example of what you were just saying is writing a song, singing a song that's personal and that's very uh, particular, but also has these universal ideas about it. So it's interesting for you as a songwriter, again, are there particular moments on Trouble and Strife where you feel Mm -hmm. like you, because look, I mean, and, and, 
every artist aspires to do their best work all the time. But of course, as an artist, you're always hypercritical and you always feel like you have something more to shoot for. But what happens is, and the example I always use is if Coltrane had felt a love Supreme was perfect, well, then what's the point of making another album? <laughs> but, you know, it was close to perfect. And I mean, most other people may think it's perfect, you know, <laughs> likewise, like a, a pet sounds, but, you know, so it's interesting. But as an artist, you still hit those moments where you feel like you come so close or you find those little moments of happiness where you're like, okay, I nailed what it is that I'm looking for. And yes. for you, were there those moments on Trouble and Strife that you feel like, you know what, knowing that taking the idea of the Leslie Gore song or James Brown, I don't want nobody to give me nothing, where you take a personal story and make it political. And it's, it's really interesting because I had Steve Van Zandt on the show recently and he was talking about, you know, how in the 80s you had this community of artists who were so active. But mm -hmm. it wasn't until Jackson Brown, Lives in the Balance, that Jackson had taken his, you know, sort of daily routine of giving back and put it into music. And it's mm -hmm. funny because I feel like it was an interesting point, but I feel like for a lot of people, you know, what's happening now is you have a lot of artists who are being very political, but not necessarily musically. They're being very political on social media, sure. you know, and all this, which is great because they're, you know, I, I mean, I'm, you know, respect the hell out of what like Taylor Swift and Billie Eilish have done because they're reaching so many people. Yeah. But it's interesting because, you know, still moving that into the idea of music, Mm -hmm. And, you know, protest songs is a different thing, you know, and, and it's and I guess what I'm trying to get at in a very long winded way, I'm sorry, is like, it's not easy to write a good protest song. It's really oh, not. <laughs> no. And I, I think if you don't happen to have that at the ready of like, oh, I'm, I'm going to write something about this that I know is going to be great and I'm going to put it out tomorrow. I mean, these things are happening in real time. So I don't have any argument with with a, an artist who's just, you know, using their platform to, uh, you know, to try to get a message across that's political that doesn't have anything to do with the music. And I don't even have a problem with artists who are like, I don't want to be political. I, I want my music to be just about my music and my art. I want to create maybe even an island of, of space where, where this craziness that's going on in the world doesn't exist and where we can escape to this. Like, I, I don't have a problem with that either. Um, but to answer your question... I just, to me, I just was so personally uh, enraged by everything that was going on and is still going on. And, you know, a song like that was a lie. I mean, you, you, t you tune into these airbrushed, you know, made up people in the suits behind the podium and you hear what they're saying and you, they are straight up lying to you. It is clear as day that they are lying to you and to everyone else. And I'm, I'm offended by that. I am so offended and enraged by that. Those are my tax dollars going to pay that person's salary and they come up and they're just trying to lie to me. You know, I don't, that, that enrages me. So that, that song, that was a lie is it, it comes from that place. And if you look at the second verse, um, you know, uh, every day it gets a little bit worse. Well, he's just a wallet and she's just a purse. You know, that's about a personal journey that, that my partner and I took through the medical system that we have in this country right now, where our, our daughter had to have several surgeries over the course of the year. And we got an inside tour of how screwed up our medical system is, how it's, it's almost designed to make you like the insurance companies and, and get trying to get reimbursed for things via insurance companies. It's almost like it's designed to just 
take a vacuum cleaner and suck your wallet and your life's savings dry. And then once it's done, oh, and then, you know, then, then we'll stop doing what we're going to do. It's, they just look at you as if you are uh, just someone whose pocket needs to be picked. You're just a wallet. You're just a purse. That's all you are to them. You're not a human being. And it's very dehumanizing. And that, that infuriates me too. So, uh, so, those are some personal things that, you know, come into play in writing some of these songs. And that one in particular, I felt like I was able to take that, you know, rage that the song came from, but to put it into this song, which is kind of like a, you know, sing-along rockin' song that you can have pleasure listening to. And I felt like that sort of hit the right, the right balance with what I was trying to do. Well, it's interesting because, you know, I like your, you're very generous, by the way, when you say almost as if they're trying to suck you dry, you know, <laughs> you're, you're, you're being probably too kind, but you know, <laughs> but yeah, we are just the instrument of their profits. That's all we are. And that's, that flies in the face of what we expect from people who are caring for us and caring for our families and caring for our children. Well, yeah, no, absolutely. And it, and it is, and it's, you know, I mean, it's, there's so many things to be enraged about at this moment. You know, mm-hmm. but, you know, let's take it then to a song like Dylan's Masters of War. And I know you, you put on the list High Water or Masters of War. So mm-hmm. you, you had two Dylan options on there. But the thing is, too, where you talk about taking a song that comes from rage, because, you know, mm-hmm. there are a lot of protest songs or songs of social justice, whatever you want to call it, that come from healing. Mm-hmm. There aren't always as many that come, you know, when you look at a blowing in the wind, when you look at a redemption song, things like that, you know. Like, and then you look at one of my favorites too is, is, you know, cause I think it may be the angriest song ever written and in a good way is Elvis Costello's Tramp the Dirt Down. Just mm-hmm. a remarkable song. And, you know, and Dylan's Masters of War is the same thing. It comes from that place of rage, mm-hmm. you know? So talk about being able to, to Masters of War, using that as an example and tying it in with, you know, that's a lie. When you look at, you know, like, you know, that I, again, well, as we talked about, it's not easy to write a good protest song and to write one that comes from rage. It's interesting because you would think that it would be easy to write a protest song that comes from rage, mm-hmm. but no. Well, and the Dylan song, The Masters of War, that's, a, that's got a different flavor. That is just, uh, you know, that's really just calling someone out for their abuse of power. And it's doing it in such a way that the, my favorite line in that is, I want you to know I can see through your masks. Because, you know, these these power structures are all hidden behind, uh, you know, th- these things that are, that basically propaganda, these stories that are told to us of why these things are necessary, why it's necessary for us to have a massive, huge, expensive military that we don't really know what they do and they, we don't really know how much it costs and, and we're not supposed to ask and, you know, all of our tax dollars go to that. We're not, you know, it's, it's, we're not supposed to know um, because that's unpatriotic for us to question that. So all of this stuff is hidden behind these stories and these narratives. Um, but, you know, Dylan's was like, I can see through your mask. I understand what you're doing. I know what's going on. And to me, just that, that one line is just so devastating of like, you think you're, you're fooling us all, but I see, you know, and just, and then going on to enumerate all the destructive things that these masters of war are responsible for of, you know, people, children dying. And, and, you know, it's, it's just, 
you know, the horror that they are responsible for and being, you know, someone Dylan was just like, I'm, I'm just going to tell it like it is and I'm not going to sugarcoat it. And he wasn't interested in, in making it into a, you know, happy sing along song. Cause that's, that was not his bag. He was about, I'm standing here with my acoustic guitar and I'm just going to, you know, tell it like it is. So, so that song is, you know, for me, an, a great example of just getting right to the point and calling out the abusers uh, who abuse their power. Well, yeah, I mean, it's funny because the episode that went live today is John Densmore taking us through some of his favorite Dylan songs. And, you know, I don't think there was anyone ever better at Dylan at just saying, you know, saying the shit that other people, mm-hmm. you know, want to say, but don't say. And, and you know, it's, it's I mean, if you look at it, it's funny can't say well, in, in the way that he can in, in the, the well I mean being able to say it in the way he can is different but in terms of you know just like even if you look at a song like you know and this came up when I was interviewing someone not long ago don't think twice I'm all right mm-hmm. which you know I mean to me it's the harshest breakup song that's ever been written <laughs> it's it's a perfect song but it is you know I, I mean what what can be harsher than saying to someone else all right you just wasted my precious time you know yeah yeah I mean, yeah, he was, he's not a sentimental guy. <laughs> Let's put it that way. <laughs> you know what though? It's funny because actually, and I appreciate it. Now we're coming in a different time, but actually that we'll tie this back in with your work in a second, because here's the crazy thing. I really enjoyed this about both Dylan and Tom Petty as well. Cause Petty, I'm a huge, huge, huge fan of, and just being a geek because you know, that's how a show like this starts is just me being a geek and thinking <laughs> about these things. Right. Uh-huh. But if you look at early Tom Petty stuff, like you got lucky, mm-hmm. you know, or, you know, don't do me like that. He yeah. was just this, he was this very testosterone filled dude. And then he grew up to write songs like Wildflowers mm-hmm. and The Best of Everything. And it's yeah. funny because Dylan went from writing Don't Think Twice It's All Right to If You See Her Say Hello, which might be yeah. the most beautiful love song ever written. So, My Love or Shooting Star or, you know, he's, he also is, you know, able to write incredibly tender, delicate heartbreakingly beautiful love songs. So, um, so I think, you know, that's very true. I don't know if I would call them sentimental or not, but they're definitely heartfelt and tender and just enormously loving so that he's able to do that too. Yeah. And it's, the reason I bring it up is because again, it's, it's, you know, I mean, yeah, I don't know if I would call them sentimental either, but necessarily there still is a beauty and a a sweetness to them, you know? And, And so it's interesting then, you know, because obviously you're talking about artists who evolve and grow and, you know, change, you know, and it's interesting. I mean, you know, so for you, when you look at Trouble and Strife, you know, mm-hmm. and you tie it through past work and everything, because it's really interesting. I think that, you know, one thing I'm always fascinated with is the idea of artists who, there's a, uh, an English literature train of thought that you are, that most writers have one theme and are simply trying to perfect it over mm-hmm. time. So do you go back and hear similar themes and, and the way that they evolve as you matured? And, you know, obviously you now have a very different life. You are in the Catskills with a partner and with a daughter and all this stuff. Um, you know, that's that's a good question. I, I don't think I'm an example of someone who has, you know, picked a theme and stuck with it over my career as a writer. You know, I, I think this record is very much a departure for me because I've never felt like I 
wanted to or was qualified to write political songs. And I, I felt like, you know, I've, I've certainly been politically active in my life and in my career and, you know, benefits and fundraising and donations and all of that. But I've, you know, I've not written political music before this record. So this is a real departure for me. But it just, it just came from a very... Uh, I guess, real unguarded place where I was just needing to respond uh, to what was happening in the world, you know? And I, I feel like, you know, all of us who are adults and who are citizens of this country have to share in the responsibility of writing this ship. You know, people say it's a, an all hands on deck moment. And I think that's very true. So I have to say to myself in that moment, what is it that I can contribute to this effort? And I can certainly contribute by being a citizen and calling my representatives and writing postcards to voters and donating to this organization and, and going to that protest. All of that stuff is, is good to do. But I also have a particular role as a musician and as an artist, and I have a particular platform. So I just didn't feel like I could go back to writing, uh, you know, songs that were more about uh, interpersonal relationships or romance or, uh, you know, anything like that. I just didn't, it didn't feel right to me. So, um, so that's what this record is about. It's a departure. And I may end up going back to writing other songs that are more about just, you know, situations in my own home or, or, you know, things that are a little bit more ethereal and spiritual that it's not like I think I will ever abandon that completely, but, um, but for me, this is a, a departure and it just felt like the right thing to do. Well, obviously these are such unique times anyway, because there's been so much to get inspired about and so much going on, you know, and I talked about this with artists over time too. I mean, basically, you know, and, uh, you know, before everything happened with the pandemic, what was happening was you could do a benefit every single day. There were all these different causes. <laughs> there were all these different, you know, and I mean, literally, you know, I mean, you could throw a benefit every single day and still not yeah. be able to, you know, handle all of the issues that was coming from this administration. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. That's, I think that's part of the plan. You know, it's just, it's to overwhelm people and to make them feel like there's nothing they can do because it's like a hydra. You cut one head off and nine more sprout out of the neck of it. So, you know, that's, uh, I think that's part of the strategy to wear people down so that they will stop uh, protesting and they'll stop uh, trying to make any, any difference. Well, let's take it to, that ties in nicely with the Chilean protester song, which, um, yeah, I'd rather you say the name just because my Spanish is absolutely terrible. Un violador. Uh, shoot, no, I have to look it up too. I don't want to mess this up. <laughs> Un violador in su camino. And it, uh, the translation is a rapist in your pathway. And um, this is a, a, something that actually came from a Chilean theater group. And this is a, a, a group that performed this song as part of uh, a theatrical performance in Chile and, uh, you know, filmed it and put it out on social media. And it became this huge social media sensation in Chile. And then it became, uh, you know, got picked up by people all over the world and other groups uh, of women have been uh, performing this song with, uh, you know, with different theat in different theatrical ways in places all over the world. And it's really extraordinary uh, that something like this, you know, to me, again, I, I look a at a protest song as how is it useful? And this song is incredibly useful as a tool to, uh, to bring women together 
to uh, to protest uh, sexual violence and sexual violence that goes unreported because women are afraid to report it because they feel like they're going to be mistreated after they have been reported and victimized all over again or they won't be believed. You know, this is something that we have seen writ large in, in our country uh, in the Kavanaugh hearings. You know, it's any woman who comes forward to report being violated sexually is made to suffer for it. And that happens all over the world. And it happens on, you know, on the large stage of a, of a Supreme Court confirmation hearings. And it happens in, you know, on the small stage of, you know, families or police precincts. So this song is a way for women who are fed up with that to come together and to create some kind of energy behind this, uh, this, uh, sort of uh, protest of like, we, we do not accept this and this is not right. Yeah. I mean, it's just, as I was just looking up because I mean, as you talk about, first of all, do you remember what year the song was from or how old the song is? I think it's from 2019. I think it's very recent. It could be older than that, but it's, it's very, fairly recent. Yeah. Well, no, it's interesting because I mean, it's and interesting and sad and pathetic as you were talking about, you know, the Kavanaugh hearings and, and women being afraid to come forward. What I was looking up because I want to make sure I didn't, you know, but obviously that was just in the headlines two weeks ago with, you know, the Netflix documentary Daisy and the woman who killed herself. Mm-hmm. I, didn't, you know? I didn't see that, but it's, you know, it's not like you have to look far for examples of that. You know? Well, that was an unfortunate, really high profile and, and tragic case because a girl who was raped when she was 14 reported it and was basically crucified for it for years, turned it into a, she became a, an activist and then just, two weeks ago, killed herself. Ugh. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, and it, I mean, it's a huge, huge burden to put on someone like that. It's a huge burden. Yeah. So it's interesting for you to talk about being able to then share the importance of that song and, you know, be able to, to, you know, cause again, I mean, obviously one thing that you hope for music is that it inspires people, that it gives mm-hmm. them courage. And, and also there's something about, you know, songs that, that, you know, like, look, a great song, whether it's personal or political, and oftentimes as we've discussed as both, it gets in your head and makes you think that, you know, someone understands you and makes you think that, especially when you're a kid and you mm-hmm. feel so isolated yeah. and you feel that you're not alone. So talk about being exactly. able to, you know, having that voice and being able to share a song like that, that, you know, again, it's another song that, you know, I know a lot of music. I didn't know what the hell it was. Mm. And it's also, it's a, it's a performance piece for, pe- for women to come together in the streets and perform. So it's it's a song that can get into someone's head as an individual, but it's also a tool to bring women together and to create these events, which are, I'm sure, hugely empowering and really important to stand up and say, you know, fuck you, this is not right, and I'm not going to accept it, and none of these other women are going to accept it either, and we're all standing together. So I think there's huge power in that. Interesting. So, I mean, for you, when you think about that, you know, and I mean, you know, like, are there, there, you know, because on your list, I didn't, you know, well, there's that one, but otherwise there weren't female artists, but are there artists that you look at and that tie in with Trouble and Strife or other songs you've written over the years that really speak to female empowerment well? And actually, no, I'm sorry, Leslie Gore was a perfect example of something you mentioned for that. There's there's a few Um, female artists on my list, in in fact, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, there were two. Okay. My apologies. Mm-hmm. Who's the th- okay, yeah. So Kate I got up at six o'clock. Person, speaking yeah. of female empowerment, I got up at six o'clock this morning to interview Malala, which was amazing. But wow. I'm brain dead. I'm not going to lie at this time. 
Yeah, six o'clock in the morning at okay. any time is, is fairly <laughs> early, but yes. So it's interesting though. I mean, and we spoke a little bit about how, you know, Leslie Gore and You Don't Own Me tied in a little bit, but I mean, still, you know, when you think about, you know, are there specific female empowerment issues you hear then or that you feel you address on Trouble and Strife? Because as you mentioned with the Chilean song, which I don't want to butcher the title because like I said, my Spanish is terrible. Mm-hmm. You know, that is something that is very recent and speaks to right now. And it speaks to something that, as I just mentioned, is affecting people, unfortunately, almost on a daily basis still. Oh, yes, absolutely. And it's affecting people everywhere. Um, I, you know, I think the probably the closest that uh, I got on this record, Trouble and, St- and Strife, to looking at something through a gender-specific lens uh, is the song Boy Don't You Know. And um, it's, uh, it, it's funny, I was in Scotland and I just happened to pick up a newspaper and was reading about a local school district where many of the kids who were in, you know, middle school, 11 and 12 year old kids were um, seeking to have sex reassignment uh, surgeries and to, uh, you know, go through this uh, change process uh, and have the medications and things like that. Kids who are still very, very young and the this school administrator was talking about this phenomenon and saying, you know, of course we want to support these children in, you know, realizing themselves fully, but I think we have to look at this phenomenon and say, is there something else about our culture that makes girls want to become boys instead of women? And uh, and, and I thought to myself, well, that's that's a really interesting way to look at this because um, you know, I, you know, I'm the mother of a teenage girl and, uh, you know, she's in, she's also in this generation where being genderqueer and, and that sort of thing is very out in the open. It's very talked about. And she has friends who are, uh, you know, at differing points on the gender spectrum and that sort of thing. And I just thought maybe some of this, you know, I, I don't presume to speak for somebody who's in that situation, but maybe some of this comes from, young girls looking at the reality of being a grown woman in our world and in our society and saying, I don't want to do that. <laughs> you know, I want to, <laughs> I want to do this other thing because these people, these, these men and these boys are the ones who people listen to and they're the ones who are respected and they're the ones whose word isn't doubted. And uh, you know, it just seems like they get a better deal. So, uh, so that's kind of what that, song is about. It's about this, uh, uh, this young girl who, uh, wants to reassign her gender, you know, not, not solely because she feels internally impelled to, but because she looks at the reality of what being a grown woman is. And she's like, I'm not having it. Wow. That's fascinating. But it's interesting then, you know, and taking this from music into Roma, are there people that you look at or that you admire for the way that, you know, and I mean, again, when you, you mentioned the Leslie Gore song and how people didn't talk about that in the 60s, you know, but obviously there were people who were. And then, of course, you come into the 70s and you have, you know, like the women's movement and all this. Yeah. And, you know, like, but I mean, are there people or, and, you know, talking back to the music artists that you really admire for the way that, you know, kind of showed you that, you know, all right, being a woman in music is not a bad thing or that, you know, or just for the way that they were able to stand up. And like you say, because it's funny, from a girl standpoint, you might look at it and be like, and again, I certainly don't profess to, you know, be able to, uh, you know, speak to this either, you know, mm-hmm. about the understanding of like, oh, okay, well, it's more difficult for this. But, you know, certainly from the standpoint of you look at women who, you know, 
who just basically kicked ass and were, you know, like, okay. Um, I, I think what you're asking is, did I... Female role models, but, but I, again, like, I, yeah. yeah. So, and did I specifically need female role models? Not necessarily did you need, or, not, not uh, necessarily, no, sorry, not to, but not necessarily did you need, but just were there people that you admire? Not, not well, needed, course, yeah. but I think everyone, you know, has role models, whether you need them or not. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, there's uh, amazing female artists that I've, uh, you know, people like Etta James and people like Mavis Staples, people like uh, Patti Smith and Chrissy Hind, and, uh, you know, the list goes on and on. There, uh, you know, there's always been amazing, uh, you know, women artists in making great music. Um, I, it's it's funny because this, this question has come up for me, you know, every, like, over and over and over again over the years of, like, how does it feel to be a woman in rock and and, you know, to have that sort of perspective on it. And, you know, for me, I just felt like the best way to think about it was just not to think about it in those terms of it's just, is it, is the music good? And is this a person that you think is doing great music and do you like them? And that's, you know, that to me was the the rubric. Of course, there's many, many women that I, you know, who are doing great music and, and who I think are amazing. Um, but I don't know that I felt like I needed to, uh, this may not be answering your, the question that you actually asked, but I, I don't feel, feel like I needed to uh, pick out female role models uh, to, in order to help me see how I could make a, you know, a, a life in music and be an artist in music. Cause I just don't, you know, of course I was going to do that. You know? It's interesting. Cause I, I don't, I've never asked that question. I don't think about it until you mentioned, you know, boy, don't you know, and the idea of girls who, who may look at, you know, from the perspective of like, it's just easier to yeah. be a boy than to be a grown man. So that's why I was asking specifically was, were there people that then, you know, but again, if you never, if you never thought that way, then it doesn't become it. And it's funny because it's not necessarily only female role models, just got anyone in general who sort of followed their own path, who kicked ass. And that ties in very beautifully with your last choice, which is John Lennon, yeah. who male or female, you know, because it was to me probably the quintessential person at, you know, kicking ass and following their own rules. And, you know, I did a story a couple of years ago for Forbes talking about the fact that, look, you look at the guy in 1975. First of all, I was talking about this with someone, John Dansborn, the one we were talking about. Look, there will never be anything, you know, and it's funny because you can understand this probably better than anyone because, you know, of course, when you wrote What If God Was One Of Us, you know, people had a lot of thoughts on that. Imagine coming out of the fucking Beatles in 1970 and saying, I don't believe in the Beatles. I don't believe in God. There yeah. just can never be, there can never yeah. be an equivalent thing in terms of, you know, the courage that it takes to do that. Or yeah. then in 1975, being the biggest rock star in the world and said, ah, cool, I'm going to go be a dad for five years. I'm good. Peace out. Yeah. Mm. You know, so talk about power to the people choosing that song and just tying it in with the last, you know, that influence yeah. of that person who follows their own rules a hundred percent. Well, I, 
the, I, I chose this uh, this song, Power to the People, very specifically because of the reason that Lennon wrote it. You know, he became uh, connected with people like Abby Hoffman and a lot of the sort of more radical political people when he moved to New York. He and Yoko both did. So they started going to a lot of demonstrations and they started uh, just becoming very, very active. And so he was at a lot of marches and he wrote Power to the People because he thought that there needed to be better chance and better things for people to do at these marches. You know, it's, it's like you can only use, you know, we shall overcome and the people united will never be defeated. Like, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a pretty limited, limited repertoire was his point of view. And he wanted to add to that and give people something to chant and to sing. And that's where power to the people comes from. And to me, that's just like, what a perfect uh, political song because it's catchy. It, it's uplifting. It's energizing. You can use it and as you're marching down the street in your protest and in your action. But it's also a cool record too, you know, where you can and you go into the verses and he, you know, it's, he says, "You say you want a revolution. We better get it on right away." So he's name checking his earlier song, "Revolution," where he was ambivalent about it, and he's saying that he's coming out for being yes, let's go. So, so there's just so much going on with this song, and and that's why I picked it. I just think it's such an ideal political song. No, absolutely. And it's funny because, you know, also you look at a song like Instant Karma. I mean, he was one of those people who was so adept at writing songs that, you know, that could make a protest song that was catchy as hell as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great one too. Cool. Well, it's interesting. I mean, you know, do, do you, I mean, I don't know. I mean, do you hear direct John Lennon influence in your stuff, whether it's older stuff? or on Trouble and Strife? I mean, the, the thing that I appreciated about the Beatles very young, like I started listening to them when I was very young, um, or just in my you know early teens, like 12, 13, uh, you know, I had the, the White Album and listened to that over and over and over again. And I think the thing that really stuck with me was that you could have an album and a group and the songs could be like, nothing like each other from one song to the next. You could have one record that contained all these different kinds of songs on it, you know, could, could contain multitudes as, uh, as Mr. Dylan is saying these days. Um, and I think that really stuck with me that there wasn't a rule that you had to make everything sound the same or that you had to have your one sound that you would stick to and that anybody who told you so was just wrong. <laughs> so <laughs> I think there's a, uh, I think that was something that I internalized very early. And, uh, you know, you look at somebody like Lennon and he certainly did that himself on, on his solo records and as a member of the Beatles. So just to be able to, to write any kind of song that you want and that you can is fine. And not to be afraid to stay in some little box because you've already done one song like that that was successful or whatever, you know. You just, uh, you know, the Beatles were not singing Love Me Do uh, you know, and, and doing that kind of stuff for very long. They advanced and they advanced and they advanced and they, you know, were writing all kinds of songs. So I think that is, you know, if I, if I had to parse any particular influence uh, from, you know, from Lennon, uh, it would probably be, be that, you know, foremost and, and first. Well, it's so funny because when you think about having such young success like you did, 
with one of us. I mean, you know, I'm sure that that's a rule then that, you know, you, you, I'm sure it's a rule then that you appreciated at that time, because at that point, you know, a lot of artists would have been tempted to say, okay, cool. I'm going to do something similar because, you know, I had success with it, you know, mm-hmm. so you have that lesson instilled in you from an early age of, no, I don't need to make the same song twice in a row, you know? So it's funny. I mean, did you find at an early age that that rule like followed you and has influenced you throughout your career? And even when it comes to making an album like this, like you say, that is a departure. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I think it, it's it's the rule that there aren't any rules. You know, whatever, you know, that's the song, Take It Any Way I Can Get It is kind of about that. It's like any way that works for you, any way to write a song that is a good song is fine. Any song that you can put out into the world, you know, let let there be songs to fill the air in the words of Jerry Garcia, you know, and, and Robert Hunter, you know, just don't limit yourself and, and don't constrict yourself. Just get it, get it done any way you can do it. Cool. On that note, is there anything that you want to add? I did not ask you about. Mm, I don't think so. I think we pretty much exhausted my knowledge of political songwriting here. (laughs) Well, this was great. Thank you. I'm sorry that I was so brain dead because I was definitely like, you know, this was one of those ones where I was like, I'm having a hard time keeping up. But yeah, thank you so much. Great to speak right. with you. Thanks. Bye. Thank you. Hey, this is Steve Balton. You've been here on People Have the Power with special guest Joan Osborne. Thanks.